This podcast is recorded in front of a live studio audience at Legend Comics in Omaha, Nebraska. You're listening to the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast with Joe and Matt. Welcome to the third episode of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast. My name is Matt Baum. I write about and appraise comics for WorthPoint.com. And I'm Joe Patrick, manager of Legend Comics in Omaha, Nebraska, and artist and co-creator of Good Plus Online. Each week, Joe and I discuss the biggest comic book headlines, review a couple of new comics from the previous Wednesday, talk about a couple of comics coming the next Wednesday that we're excited about, and answer some of your questions. But before we get to all that fun, let's talk about some of this week's big news. This week's big news is a bit of a spoiler, but if you haven't heard about this one by now, I don't know where you've been hiding. Of course, we're talking about Fantastic Four 587, where we learned who would die as part of the 3 storyline when Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, gave his life, closing the portal to the negative zone. Matt Bomb, did you get misty? I did, and before we get into it, I'd just like to say, one nerd stripe to me, because I totally called it. Whatever, Johnny you Storm. said Franklin. I- that was my first theory, but I went back on it, and we can all refer to last week's podcast if you'd like yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. The Techni- point being, it was very, very well executed. <clears throat> it didn't come off as some type of shtick to sell comics. It was a story point. It was well done. I'm not going to give away how it happened, but most of us know that it happened. So I will say, yes, it was touching, very well executed. I loved the very end of the book which is just a black page that says the last stand of, you know, Johnny Storm. It was a very much right. a lost moment, you know, where, like, you get hit and <coughs> it happens and boom, the show is over, you know? Yeah, I agree. It was very well done. And I actually was a bit moved. Uh, I won't go as far as to say I got misty, but it was really well told, very emotional. Uh, he totally had a Spock in Wrath of Khan moment <laughs> with uh, the thing. And uh, it was heartbreaking. Uh, like, I don't want to get into too many spoilers about the issue itself. But, yeah, it was just well told. Good job, Hickman and Epting. In other news, Johnny wasn't the only casualty. Wizard Magazine, which has been reporting on comics since July 1991, shipped its final print edition this week. Joe, do we care, or is this a funeral we've been expecting? No, this isn't really a shock. Wizard has been on a steady decline for years. And, I mean, I haven't even picked up the magazine in quite some time. I do remember... got steadily thinner as well. It did get thinner. <laughs> well, you know, they they changed uh, format. They changed focus. Uh, some years ago, they decided they wanted to be a pop culture magazine instead of a comics magazine. And that's where they lost me. Yeah, it literally became like an FHM. Or, yeah, uh, it's like, what? look how hot Megan Fox is yeah. this month. Not, well, yeah. Who would be the sexiest She-Hulk? You know, like... <laughs> You know, and I used to love Wizard when I was younger. Uh, I remember picking it up off the rack in the in the early '90s. Used to come bagged with a ridiculous trading card, and uh, it had great interviews and a price guide that was not the greatest, but at least it came every month. Yeah, I mean, Wizard used to be comics journalism. They used to break stories. That's we would find out about the new big miniseries that was coming out in yeah. Wizard. And- well, and it was you know it came out during a time when the internet was not really widespread, and they were the place to go. That's you know. where, they, and that's where they dropped the ball, in my opinion. When everyone else moved to the internet, when Newsarama came up and Comic Book Resources came up, Wizard tried to stay a print magazine, and you're not going to scoop the internet where where stories no. instantly hit. You're not going to scoop anybody. So at least three or four years too late, Wizard decides they're going to become a web-based ten magazine. Ten years too late. Yeah, maybe ten years <laughs> too late. And now they're going to start competing with Newsarama, Comics Alliance, Comic Book Resources. 
when they've already upset everyone, laid off almost their complete workforce very quietly from what I understand as well, reading online. It sounds like they gave yeah. everybody the day off on Friday. Said, hey, everybody go home. By the way, don't come back. Watch football this weekend and you're fired, you know. (laughs) And then on that same day that they announced that they're going to be canceling both their print magazines, they put out a press release saying, hey, we've got new stock options that are available to buy into our company for our web-based magazine that we're starting. And we're going to buy a whole bunch more comic shows. But a we lot should, of comics. Yeah, they're buying like five or six more. Yeah. But they're also not mentioning that Marvel, DC, Image, none, Dark Horse, none of the big guys are going to be dealing with them because they're also upset with what Garib Sheamus did. So what's the story behind that? Like they were reprinting things without permission? It's for, from what I understand, and this is from what I've read online, um, Heidi McDonald of The Beat did a great piece on this. But she they talked about how Wizard had reprinted some Marvel stuff and essentially just – Never paid him for it. Never returned any phone calls. And that may have been the final straw when everybody jumped out of the Wizard World convention two years ago, which used to be the biggest, the second biggest convention in the United States. Yeah, yeah, behind San Diego. And now I think Avatar is their biggest publisher that Ooh. shows up. And that's not to make fun of Avatar. They do a great job. But not quite the heavyweights at the other guys They do are. a great job. <laughs> anyway, moving on. For the third story in this week's Death Trifecta, Archie Comics announced they would be the final company to stop using the Comics Code Authority. So what's next here, Joe? Full frontal jughead? One can only hope. Honestly, it's a long since time that the Comics Code just go away. It's not a surprise to anyone that people are finally dropping it. Marvel had the good sense to drop it ten years ago in favor of their own rating system. And really, that's the way things should be done. Uh, Self-regulation... Why submit it to this phantom body yeah, that, with, with no, outdated standards? With no clear regulations whatsoever. Yeah. Like, regulations like good must always triumph over evil. Yeah, no and, vampires. And crime should look like it sucks to commit. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we did some research looking up the old comics code rules, and they are pretty prehistoric. Um, and I know it's been updated over the years, but really the fact that the comics companies weren't Policing themselves. And nobody even knew who was on the board. It was operating like a zombie organization. and like You can't say zombie. <laughs> yeah, that was part of it, yeah. Archie even came out and admitted that they were, weren't submitting their comics to anyone. They had paid their yeah. dues and were just putting the stamp on the cover. So Yeah, basically the comics code. Archie's own internal standards made the comics code redundant. And so that's it. It's time for it to go. Agreed. All right, let's move on to comic reviews. Matt, what did you pick up this week? This week I picked up Infestation Number 1 from IDW, written by Dad Amnett and Andy Lanning, with art by David Messina. This is IDW's first attempt at a big crossover, as far as I know. Is that correct? As far as I know. I would say this appears to be a crossover in the loosest of senses, but we'll get to that. The story takes place at Kirtland Underground Munitions Complex in New Mexico, where the U.S. military has been up to no good, working with a sort of Stargate tech that opened a portal to a universe populated by zombies they're calling Dimension Z. There was kind of a fun deep blue sea moment where we see one of the characters explaining to us what's going on with the gate when suddenly it goes wrong, and the CVO, the covert vampiric operations, have to be called in to shut it down. This is after zombies begin pouring out of it. Zombies themselves are driven by a hive mind called the Undermine that seeks to conquer the multiverse. I don't know if we've ever heard that term before. That might be a new one. The multiverse? <laughs> kind of reminiscent of the, uh, the Annihilation Wave that we remember from Abnett and Lanning's Annihilation story at Marvel. Now, 
for the life of me, I thought I was going to be reviewing a G.I. Joe, Transformers, Star Trek, Ghostbusters crossover because that's what's on the cover. Yeah. But none of them make any appearances in this book. This is pretty much a CVO book start to finish. I, I think it's clever what Abnett and Lanning have going on here where they, they've incorporated Chris Ryle and Ashley Wood's zombies versus robots and basically said it happens in the same world as the CVO, and the government has been testing the robots on zombies to make sure that they could clean out this other area to use this dimension for whatever they want. That's good and fun, and I think Abnett and Lanning did a good job making the CVO somewhat interesting. I can't say I've ever cared about them. They seem sort of to me like a, a better-executed Wetworks book, maybe like a more militaristic BPRD Demons there and devils show up. You send the CVO in, and these vampires kick their butts. And of course, they're sexy and scary. Um, one I don't, of them's a supermodel. One of them is a supermodel whose name is Brit, and I feel like they kind of drew her like Britney Spears, which was kind of ridiculous <laughs> because no one is attracted to Britney Spears. I don't know much about the CVO, but writers, the, like I said, the writers do a good enough job of making them interesting. The story does get a little bogged down in some of the terms, like the Artillica which, from what I can tell, is military-grade technology mixed with magic. They really pushed a lot of these issues, and I sort of lost the idea of where they were going with it. But ultimately, it seems they... This is from what I understand, because like I said, it got a little jumbled. They use the Artillica to push the zombies back into this portal, sealing them in there, but it somehow gave them access to several other worlds, including the worlds of G.I. Joe, the Transformers... And I know this just sounds ridiculous to say out loud, and I am a full-grown man saying it. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. And uh, the Ghostbusters, which I got to say is somewhat clever, but no. does it make a real company-wide crossover? Nope. Okay. You know, and I should say I really enjoy Messina's art in the Star Trek books. I don't feel like he's really strong here. He seems a little out of his element, but it's not bad. Ultimately, I give this one a skim it for my rating because – like I said, it's just kind of silly. I mean, it seems like you're interjecting zombies because zombies are cool and everybody loves them. And let's see how the Transformers deal with them. I mean, I just don't know that I care. And I'm probably not going to pick up any of the following books to even see really where this one goes. Joe? Well, Skimit is uh, being very generous. Um, <laughs> I, I know our first two episodes had very glowing reviews of all the books we read. Get ready, because this is not going to be pleasant. <laughs> I really did not like this comic. I thought it was ridiculous and on every level, uh, and not in like a good way. Everything was so serious. But then you're talking about zombies invading the Ghostbusters universe <laughs> and vampire secret agents that have to come and uh, save the day, and everything is so serious when it is so ridiculous. Um, and if they had played it up, if everything had been tongue-in-cheek and it had been ridiculous on purpose, it would have been a different book. Okay, I would argue Zombies and Ghostbusters works pretty well. Zombies and Transformers. Yeah, yes. Really. Uh, or it's G.I. Joe or Star Trek. Um, yeah, Zombies and Spock. <laughs> so let me, let me uh, just address the elements separately. I agree that the Messina art is pretty good. He's been drawing uh, a lot of IDW's uh, licensed comics like Angel and Star Trek, and they've been pretty decent. Uh, but there's something about his art in this issue that looks off. Like, it had a fuzzy quality to it. Yeah. Like, everything had been scanned through cloudy glass. Like, they were going for, like, a Guy Davis thing, sort well, of? Well, I don't think it was on purpose. I, I think it was really? just, like, the resolution of the artwork. The uh, prologue art 
was good, but I didn't like how like it was a it was a clinical lab setting, but the art was all scratchy. Yeah. And it just didn't seem to fit. It works for some artists, but it didn't work here. <clears throat> My biggest problem art-wise comes from the coloring by Scarlet Gothica. It is way too muddy. Everything is either gray, brown, red, or a shade thereof. And this is a bombastic sci-fi horror story that needed bright colors, not a dark, murky mess. Um, it was hard to follow. Yeah. It was heavily computer colored, and it really <laughs> muddy it. I agree. I am a big fan of Abnet and Lanning, and I was excited to at least try this book, even though it sounded crazy. Uh, I was disappointed by the writing. Um, there is a whole lot of exposition dealing with the personal history of the CVO members. Like, you remember that time in this book? And then there's an <laughs> editor's note saying, see, CVO goes to Africa, number one, or whatever. Uh, my first reaction was, no. Yes, yeah, I don't. <laughs> uh, and, like, so instead of setting up the, the premise, like, what is the CVO? Why are they a thing? What are they doing? It's, like, references to all these old books that... I frankly don't care about – I wasn't expecting to see the CBO at all. So when I opened the book and I saw them, I was like, I remember that comic. It did not sell at all at our <laughs> store. But yeah, I mean I don't think the concept of the team is bad. I just wish they had set it up instead of dealing with story history and, and things like that. Or maybe put any of the characters on the cover. Yeah, well, that's fine. Book. <laughs> well, you know, the cover aside, I mean, you're going to sell more books with Peter Venkman on the cover than you are with the CBO on the cover. It's a both. Um, but I, when I, the copy I read had the variant cover by John K. Snyder the uh, third, and that cover was outstanding. Uh, I've loved that guy's art ever since uh, the Doctor Midnight miniseries by Matt Wagner from about ten years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and his artwork is beautiful, and it was a really stunning cover. But yeah, like I said, the story gets more and more ridiculous as it goes along, and this is a slight spoiler. Sorry. They zombify robots. <laughs> and I guess you got to have something for the Transformers to fight. Yeah, because it's not going to be really scary. Like, the, sta- the stakes would not be high. Like, picking grapes, you know, like, but, pulling heads off zombies. You know, <laughs> it was just... It, and I would have been fine with that kind of ridiculousness if they had not treated it as it was as if it were the most serious thing that could possibly be happening. I give this book a leave it. So that's a skim it from me on infestation number one and a leave it from Joe. Let's move on to your review, Joe. What did you read this week? My pick was Justice Society of America number 47 from DC Comics, written by Mark Guggenheim with art by Scott Collins. This issue is part four of the Supertown storyline that's been running since Guggenheim took over the book a few months ago. Uh, In this story, the JSA has been attacked on multiple fronts by the villainous Dr. Chaos as they try to rebuild Monument Point, the city that was destroyed during one of the team's titanic battles. Meanwhile, Mr. Terrific wrestles with an ethical dilemma. Dr. Fate tries to save the life of one of the JSA's youngest members, and Alan Scott fights to repair his broken body. This is my favorite issue of Guggenheim's run so far, but that's not really saying too much since it got off to such a rocky start, I, I really do like the idea of the JSA taking responsibility for a town that they helped destroy. Uh, it's a, an interesting take, and um, it is a nice uh, examination of the idea that you know superheroes swoop in, fight a supervillain, mess up a bunch of stuff, and then leave without helping. 
Uh, and the, they're actually like taking responsibility, and I think that's a, uh, an interesting idea. There is a nice kind of conflict that's been brewing between Jay Garrick, who is the Golden Age Flash, and the rest of the team, who aren't too sure about this direction. Art-wise, I want to start by saying how much I enjoyed the cover by Shane Davis. Uh, he is an up-and-comer. Uh, you might know him from the Superman Earth One graphic novel. And I really have loved these iconic covers that DC has put out this month, and this cover is no exception. I really enjoyed it. The Scott Collins art is growing on me. Uh, he's got a new style that is much softer and more painterly than his past style, which was scratchy and kinetic. And it looks better here than it has in the past, but it still seems a little off. Uh, it's just so different than the look that I fell in love with back when he drew The Flash. But that said, like I love his interpretation of Dr. Midnight, where it's all like pure blacks. And like, you know, he... Parts of his body are like disappearing because they're blending in with the blacks on his yeah, cape. Yeah, that stuff. is cool. That I really, is. really like that. There is something so odd though about the way he has been drawing faces. If you look at the nose, nobody has a nose. Well, okay, that's not it. I you I will never you will never be able to look at it the same way again. But I want you to look back at this issue and look at all the close-ups of the male faces, and they have ridiculously huge. Botoxed lips, like drawn in, in, <laughs> in, in heavy detail. So like everyone, all the all the dudes are walking around like this. <laughs> I'm making a face. Lips. You can't tell, but they got huge kissable lips. Um, I felt like every looked like they were straining on the toilet as well. Like every <laughs> every time we got a close up, someone was like, Ugh! you know. Yeah, but you know, Scott Collins has always kind of drawn like that. The uh, the color kind of matches the softer style and it works it's like muted in the right places and bright in the right places um so it matches scott collins's new style i just don't know if the new style really works for me i do have a big problem with this new direction this guggenheim run the jsa seems so ineffective uh since guggenheim took over the jsa is supposed to be like the granddaddy of all super teams they're the group that shows up and tells Superman and the Justice League how it should be done. Uh, and seeing them so ineffective and incapable just seems out of character for the team. And that kind of thing is frustrating because the individual characters, like the voices like Wildcat and um, Jay Garrick, like those voices ring true. And like I know that the there needs to be stakes. Like the book has to have some conflict and the JSA can't, win decidedly every time but you know this is like the opposite extreme the jsa can't do anything right and everything bad that's happening to him and it seems that they are getting beaten by a man in a green gas mask (laughs) and it just it, it it seems off like for the jsa to be having this much trouble yeah i mean these are guys that deal with time traveling pharaohs and, yeah, I mean, like universal threats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they've been they've been from one end of the universe to the other. They've been through the time stream. You know, they uh, the last the last storyline from the writer before had the JSA Bill Willingham. Fi- yeah, figuring out how to send a message back through time, canceling out a timeline where the Nazis took over the Earth and <laughs> murdered all the superheroes, like. A dude in a mask with gadgets should not be giving them this much trouble. I agree. 
I have loved the Justice Society since before their big high-profile relaunch in the late 90s. The, the Bill Willingham run grew on me, but the book really has not been the same since it was rebu- rebooted by uh, Jeff Johns and Dale Eaglesham. I am intrigued by the plot, but I am not convinced that Guggenheim's characterization of the team as a whole is, is right. Uh, and Scott Collins' art has taken a turn that I haven't completely warmed up to yet. And so, as much as it pains me, I give this book a skim it. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Personally, I think the mayor thing, where the JSA comes into the town, blows it up, beating up some guy with a sword and near godlike powers. I mean, and then the, I don't know, the city council turns around and goes, you wrecked the town, you get to be the mayor now. I mean, pretty <laughs> ridiculous, you know? I, I just, I'm not buying it's, it. You know, that's a little Silver Agey kind of. Yeah, I guess you know? it is, but it. It doesn't work with the tone of the book. If you're going to go for that kind of stuff, I yeah, agree with what you're yes. saying. There's a tone to JSA that was established by Jeff Johns where, yes, there were very high stakes and they had trouble and they fought huge villains. But ultimately, they triumphed and they looked like they knew what they were doing yes. while they did it. And yes. that tone is not here. This is darker. This is grittier. And it doesn't work for a book like JSA. It doesn't work with these characters. Like Dr. Chaos has some pretty good Dialogue. I liked the way Guggenheim yeah, writes dialogue. I don't dialogue, hate the character. But he feels like a ripoff Prometheus to me. He feels like Grant Morrison's Prometheus from JLA when he came in and had a bunch of tricks and beat up the entire JLA. And Batman was the only one that was smart enough to get around it and you know ultimately beat him. It's not working here. It, maybe that works in Grant Morrison's JLA, but it doesn't work in JSA. Agreed. As far as the art goes, I'm not even convinced that I like Scott Collins anymore. I think his style has gotten so away from what I did like about it, and maybe he is experimenting and changing into something else, but I don't like it here. I don't think it works. I think the characters look silly. I think they look posed. I thought the coloring was fine. Everything else about the book kind of bothered me. I'm giving this one a leave it. <sighs> I'm doing it. And yes. I love JSA. It hurts. It hurts six. I love these characters so much. But I think since John's left, Willingham's run, I didn't care for. It didn't grow on me. It didn't really go anywhere. I don't like that they've broken up the team the way that they have. Oh, no, I don't like and that I either. And I don't like where the team is now, stumbling and fumbling and getting beat up by a wannabe Prometheus. All right. Well, that's a skim it from me, and I'll leave it from Matt. All this negativity. <laughs> We must have had a bad this week. Is, this is what the listeners wanted. They, they wanted, wanted us. They're like, you guys writing. are being too positive. We want to hear you complain. Like, they're like, we know you. You guys are jerks. Be jerks. <laughs> That's what you do well. All right, all right. Let's move on to our picks for next Wednesday, February 2nd. Matt, what do you got? I'm going with Secret Six, number 30, which is actually the second part of a story with Secret Six or Fighting the Doom Patrol. And I love this book. It's mean. It's nasty. It's beautifully illustrated. Gail Simone has been writing some of my favorite DC books for a while now. And in my opinion, I honestly think that she's doing some of the best team books at DC. I agree. I feel like the team books have totally fallen off. When, like JSA, like we just talked about. JLA, mm-hmm. completely lost their way. The Outsiders, unreadable. Ooh, Dan DiDio, yeah. in your face. But I think <laughs> Gail Simone is nailing it. Doing really, really good stuff on both Birds of Prey and Secret Six. Yes. I'm really excited for this Joe, what are you looking forward to this week? My pick is uh, Witchfinder, Lost and Gone Forever, number one, by Mike Mignola, John R. Cutie, and art by John Severin. It's the follow-up to the Witchfinder book from a year or so ago, and uh, I have really been looking forward to more stories uh, about this character. Me too. Fun stuff. I love John Severin. He's a great old-school artist that 
you know, he, he has not lost a step. Sometimes old school artists come back and they're uns- John Byrne, for example. Hey, we don't need to call out everybody. <laughs> John Byrne, for example. <laughs> but John Severin is one of the greats, and he his art is just as good now as it's ever been. I can't wait to read this book. Well, now it's time once again to reach into our virtual mailbag and pluck out a question from one of our lucky listeners for a segment we call Ask a Nerd. Now, instead of just rattling off Wikipedia answers, our grand comic poobah, Joe Patrick, is going to take a shot at it from the top of his head. Normally, we do it for nerd stripes. This week is uh, more of a subjective question, but it's one worth looking at. Ryan, via Facebook, asks, at what point, if any, will Marvel have to reboot the entire universe, or more specifically... At what point will it become ridiculous to tie Captain America's origin to World War II? Well, uh, the beauty about Marvel as compared to DC is that they have the ability to sort of slide their timeline around. Yes, you've got characters that have an origin in World War II, but Captain America also went into suspended animation. Yeah, that was right at the end of World War II. Maybe, Maybe a better question is not so much Captain America, but a guy like Frank Castle, the Punisher. Yeah, well, you have to. Marvel's going to have to. I should just, say first, we we've recently seen him rebooted as having his origins in Vietnam, making him sixty some years old at this. Yeah, point. Yeah, you know, I I think that you know you can limit that to the the Max version of Punisher, who is clearly older. the The Marvel Universe Punisher, the main Marvel Universe Punisher, is clearly not sixty five years old. Right. Um. He's you know he might be in his forties, but you know he's still. He's not an old man. The The thing is, is that Marvel keeps very uh, subtly shifting their origins. Like, uh, you know, Reed and Ben in the Fantastic Four used to be World War II veterans. Uh, they were beating the Russians. They were trying to beat the Russians into space. Right. You know, in Fantastic Four number one. You just have to change that stuff slowly. Like, you don't have to reboot like DC did with Crisis. Um, you just kind of shift things forward, and you can do that when you have a character like Captain America. You just move back the date that he is found. Right. You know what he I mean? He was frozen for X amount of years instead of Y. Yeah, or... exactly right. Um, you know, Warren Ellis did the same thing when he launched Iron Man, uh, relaunched Iron Man. You know, he did redid Tony's origin so that instead of being held prisoner in Vietnam, you know, it was like a landmine in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, so, you know, they have the ability to just kind of fudge the numbers and push these, these things around. What leads to trouble in, like, a, a company like DC is when the old characters have always been around. Batman, for example. Uh, well, I mean specifically, like, the World War II characters, like the Justice Society. Oh, okay. Sure. You know, 20 years from now. There's no how to, how can they feasibly say that Justice Society is still running around? Well, you can say that the Flash doesn't age as quickly because of the Speed Force or Sentinel <sighs> or Green Lantern or Alan Scott, whatever you want to call him, doesn't age because he's magical. You know, I mean, stuff like that. There, there is a way. the The reason DC rebooted though is because their universe got too confusing. Right. Too many alternate Earths. Um, it wasn't well, necessarily an origin problem. It was just a multiverse problem. Yeah, and you know there is an argument pro and con for whether they needed to reboot in the first place. Bottom line is they did. Right. Marvel doesn't really have that problem. Their main universe has is relatively self-contained. 
They're able to update things as needed. And you could say a guy like Cap doesn't age as quickly because of the super soldier serum. Yeah, it's Whatever. True. You could say the Fantastic so, Four doesn't age as quickly because of the uh, the, ra- the gamma radiation, not gamma radiation, probably the cosmic rays yeah. that they encountered. Uh, so, I mean, in my opinion, Ryan, Marvel is not going to see this kind of problem. As time goes on, just, you know, move things around until it makes sense. Sure. It, it's important to keep in mind that nothing is permanent here. And at the end of the day, it's just comics, man. That wraps up this episode of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast. We want to say a big thank you to everyone that helped us get in the new and notable section of iTunes this week. And we really appreciate your ratings and comments. They really help out a lot, guys. So keep them coming. Yeah, and don't uh, forget to subscribe so you can catch all our new episodes as they're released every week. You can check out our show notes and become a fan of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Two-Headed Nerd. Or send us an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. You can follow my comic speculator blog where I write about comics both new and old at worthpoint.com or just follow me on Twitter at Matt Baumstein. And you can find updates to my webcomic at goodplusonline.com. Follow the comic on Twitter at goodplusonline. And follow me personally at JoePatrick116. Until next time, true believers, this is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. See ya! And so the Fantastic Four, minus one, set out in their Fantastic Car to search the Megalopolis.